1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. What happened after that? And how do you view history? And can we still be agents of change? Here are some better rhymes to start our time together. Imagine sitting around a campfire roasting marshmallows as you listen to Jacob. I did this past week, and trust me, it soothes the soul. I don't want to be rich, don't want to be popular, don't want to be selfish, no. I don't want to be a goat, don't want to be ignorant, don't want to be blindfolded, I just want to be countercultural. be violent, don't want to have a vendetta, don't want to be vengeful, no. I don't want to be a soldier, don't want to be militaristic, don't want to help that cycle, I just want to be a countercultural pacifist. I don't want to be a racist, don't want to be a capitalist, don't want to be sexist, no. I don't want to pass judgment, don't want to hold grudges, don't want to be hateful, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditional lover. I don't want to shop at Walmart, don't want to grow Monsanto, don't want to drink Coca-Cola, no. I don't want to burn petrol, don't want to eat perfect fruit, don't want to feel guilty, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditionally loving organic gardener. I want to be authentic, I want to be radical, I want to be optimistic, honest, I want to be humble, I want to be progressive, I want to be open, I'm inspiration, I want to be like John Wesley, or Sarah Major, or Anna Mao, I want to be like Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr., like Santa Claus, Johnny Appleseed, Dirk Dillim, or Gandhi, Alexander Mack, John Klein, George Fox, or Jesus Christ, but mostly, I just want to be me. Hello, Dunker Punks, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Nancy Fitzgerald, your host. Today, we bring you a message to chew on. Emmy Goring of the Church of the Brethren Office of Public Witness interviewed Mark Charles about Native American history and its intersect with Columbus and early European people who came to their land. Nate Hostler, the director of the Public Witness Office, reminds us that they continue to focus our listening on displaced persons. Columbus Day may have been the spark that got Nate and Emmy started, but this week we have seen concern on social media for many displaced persons. How appropriate to consider what the long-term effect of conquest and possession can be. Settle in for a good listen. Hello, this is Nathan Hostler with the Church of the Brethren's Office of Public Witness. Uh, this podcast will consider again the issue of uh, displacement. The first of our podcast on displacement 
looked at the issue of statelessness, particularly in the case of the Dominican Republic. Uh, in this podcast, we'll focus on displacement, particularly in the case of Native American communities. Emmy Goring from my office uh, spoke with uh, some of our colleagues and friends on this issue. Uh, it's Mark Charles, who is Navajo, working to raise consciousness and ac action around uh, within churches on the doctrine of discovery. He will bring up a number of issues theologically for the church to consider in relation to Native American communities and displacement and what it means for churches to be implicated in this. And this all, again, connects with displacement and thinking about this both theologically and socially or politically, thinking of how we engage as Christians. Additionally, the, this year's Christian Citizenship Seminar, the Church of the Brethren, uh, a gathering and training and advocacy event for high schoolers, uh, will focus on Native American communities, particularly looking at food security. So this is not necessarily an introduction to that, but it, it raises some um, important points and gets us ready for that conversation. Because of, of traveling, I asked Emmy to connect, and we talked through questions, and she will engage those throughout this podcast. is Mark Charles, and we will be doing an interview on indigenous communities in North America. I'll let him introduce himself. Yat A. Good morning, Emmy. Thank you for having me on this podcast today. Mark Charles, Yenishia, Sinbuke Danan Nishlin, Dotor Haglini Bashish Chain, Sinbuke Danan Bashiche, Dotor Lutit, and Yubashanella. When you introduce yourself in Navajo, you always give your four clans, and we are a matrilineal society, so our identities come from our mother's mother. My mother's mother is actually American of Dutch heritage, and so when I introduce myself, I say Tsinbeke Dene'e, which translated means the wooden shoe people. My father's mother, my second clan, is Toa Haglini, and that's the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbeke Dene'e, and then my father's father, my fourth clan, is Totochini, and that's the Bitterwater clan, one of the original uh, clans of the Navajo people. It's great to be with you today. I just moved, uh, not just, but I, about a year and a half ago, I moved from the Navajo reservation with my wife, Rachel, and our three children, and we have been living in the Washington, D.C. area for about 15 or 16 months. And uh, thank you for having me on today, and I'm looking forward to having some conversation with you. Thank you so much for coming on here. Um, I really look forward to speaking with you. And so we recently just celebrated the holiday Columbus Day. And so what does that mean to you as a Native person? Columbus Day is a very interesting holiday for our nation. There's actually a statue in front of the Union Station in Washington, D.C., a statue of Christopher Columbus. And uh, there are other statues all around the country that label Columbus as the discoverer of America. Um, and that is a very interesting word or language to use because uh, it perpetuates this myth that we have of our country. So that there, there's a very carefully constructed myth of the United States of America. That myth is that we are a nation founded on freedom, a nation founded on liberty. We seek uh, justice for people. And uh, part of that myth, part of the constructing of that myth comes from this belief of Columbus, which is that he was the discoverer of America. Now, when I speak, I remind people, I tell people, you can't discover lands that are already inhabited. 
that process is known as stealing, it's known as conquering, it's known as colonizing. The fact that to this day we teach that Columbus discovered America, it reveals the implicit racial bias of our nation, which is that Native Americans are less than human. And that actually comes very specifically from a, a papal bull that Christopher Columbus was traveling under the authority of, known as the Doctrine of Discovery. So there was a series of papal bulls written between 1452 and 1493. The first one was written by Pope Gregory V. And in this papal bull, he said to the, your, the nations of Europe, invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever. Reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. Convert them to his and your use and profit. This writing, along with others over the next 40 years, became known as the Doctrine of Discovery. This doctrine is essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever land you find not ruled by Christian rulers, those people are less than human, and the land's yours for the taking. So this was the doctrine that allowed Columbus, who was actually lost at sea, to land in a continent that was already inhabited by millions and claimed to have discovered it. It was the same doctrine that let European nations go into Africa, colonize the continent, and enslave the African people. In both cases, because the underlying belief was we were not fully human. Now, the challenge with this doctrine of discovery is that it has literally been embedded into the foundations of our nation. So in 1763, King George drew a line down the Appalachian Mountains, and he made a proclamation and he said to the colonists that they no longer had the right of discovery of the empty Indian lands west of Appalachia. This upset the colonists. They wanted those lands. And so a few years later, they wrote a letter of protest. In their letter, they accused the king of raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. And they went on to state that he has endeavored to bring upon the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages. They signed their letter on July 4th. 1776. Literally 30 lines below the statement, all men are created equal, the Declaration of Independence refers to natives as merciless Indian savages, making it very clear the only reason our founding fathers used the term all men, because they actually had a very narrow definition of who was and who was not human. This, of course, makes our Declaration of Independence a racist document that assumes the dehumanization of people of color, of native people specifically. Now, this doctrine of discovery was later embedded into our legal system. In 1823, there was a Supreme Court case, Johnson versus McIntosh. There's two men of European descent. They're litigating over a single piece of land. One of them got the land from a native tribe. The other one got the land from the government. They want to know who owned it. The case goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and the court had to decide on the principle that land titles were based. They decided that the principle was discovery that gave title to the land, and they went on to state that based on the doctrine of discovery, natives who are here first but are, only, but are less than human, we only had the right of occupancy to land, like a fish occupies water or a bird occupies air, while Europeans had the right of discovery to the land and therefore the true title to it. This case and a few others during the Marshall Court era set the legal precedent for land titles. This precedent, which is based on discovery, and the doctrine of discovery were referenced by the Supreme Court as recently as 2005. Wow. So this notion 
that our nation was discovered is based on this assumption of the dehumanization of native peoples. Now, clearly this land wasn't discovered. There were people here, there were tribes here, there were nations here, there was commerce here, there were treaties going on here long before Christopher Columbus got lost at sea. It's just that the myth, it's easier to construct the myth of America that we're a nation based on liberty, freedom, justice, and equality if we say we discovered an empty land than to tell the truth of what this nation actually did, which is it ethnically cleansed and committed genocide on this land. Because mm -hmm. you can't have a history of ethnic cleansing and genocide and be a nation that stands for liberty, justice, equality, and freedom. And so the, the myth of Columbus is one of the one of the things that our nation holds up, this myth of discovery, is, is how we try to sanitize our history. We didn't commit genocide. We discovered this land. It was empty. There were no people here. No, it, it wasn't empty. It wasn't discovered. It was ethnically cleansed through acts of genocide. So this, is, this whole history of Columbus Day is one of the things that our nation needs to find a way to grapple with. We have to acknowledge what our history is, and until we're able to do that, we're not going to be able to find a way to move forward into a healthier future, into a better sense of community, or into a better relationship. There's an Aboriginal leader, his name is George Erasmus, he's out of Canada, and he says where common memory is lacking, where people don't share in the same past, there can be no real community. Where communities to be formed, common memory must first be created. And I think this quote gets to the heart of our nation's problem with race, which is we don't have a common memory. We have a dominant culture, a white dominant people group that have a memory of discovery, expansion, exceptionalism, and opportunity. And we have communities of color, natives, African Americans, and others who have the lived experience of stolen lands, broken treaties, slavery, ethnic cleansing, Jim Crow laws, segregation, boarding schools, mass incarceration, internment camps, all of these other things we've done throughout a nation as a, as a, in our history. And there's no common memory. And that's one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons why we are, our, our sense of community is suffering so deeply right now in our history is because we're just perpetuating this myth of our own exceptionalism without acknowledging the actual very cruel and even inhumane ways that this nation was actually founded. And I know that Indigenous Day is kind of striking up in our place of Columbus Day. Do you think this is something that we could continue to work on and make it more about acknowledging our history of what really happened compared to kind of describing it as Columbus discovering America? Now, I am very much in support of having an Indigenous Peoples Day. I think that's a wonderful idea. I'm glad my people, that our people, our, our Native peoples are pushing for this day and that we have a day that honors the Indigenous peoples of this land. I think that's important and we have to move forward. I think there's something that we tend to look over when we try to reappropriate Columbus Day as Indigenous Peoples Day. So when I, when I speak, I, most people are very aware of the condition known as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. This is the condition that afflicts a person who's experienced, who's witnessed, who's been on the receiving end of violence. Many people are aware of another condition that's called historical trauma, 
This is a condition that was used by psychologists to understand the dissatisfaction in broader communities that have been oppressed over a period of time. I often refer to historical trauma as the multi-generational communal manifestations of PTSD. So historical trauma is not an individual diagnosis. It is how you understand the dissatisfaction in a broader community. It was primarily developed to understand the dissatisfaction in native communities or used to understand the dissatisfaction in native communities, but also you can see it in African-American communities and in other historically oppressed communities, even in our own nation. Now, there's another researcher who's doing some work into what is called PITS. PITS is perpetration-induced traumatic stress. It's like PTSD in every way, shape, and form, except instead of afflicting the person who received the violence, PITS afflicts the person who caused or perpetrated the violence. It's actually based on some of the thinking of Socrates, who who said that the doer of injustice is more miserable than the receiver. So when people look at our history of the doctrine of discovery, they look at what happened in the 19th century with the Indian Removal Act, the Trail of Tears, the Long Walk, um, the massacre at Wounded Knee, the massacre at Sand Creek, and all the different things that our nation did, um, the slavery, the Jim Crow laws, the segregation, all the things we've done as a nation to our minority communities. And you can very easily see how that caused historical trauma within our communities. But what I tell audiences is you cannot build a nation on 500 years of dehumanizing injustice without traumatizing yourself. And so I'm hypothesizing that if PTSD has a multi-generational communal manifestation called historical trauma, that pit also has a multi-generational communal manifestation, and that is the trauma that is afflicting white America. So I identify white America as another group of traumatized people. Now, one of Mm. the first symptoms of trauma is shock and denial. So it's very easy to see the way our nation is in shock and denial over its history and doesn't even know how to talk about it. In 2009, our Congress buried an apology to Native peoples in an appropriations bill. They never mentioned it. They never talked about it. They never read it. They never publicized it. That's not racism. That's trauma. They're so overwhelmed by what they did, they can't even publicly acknowledge it anymore. We have states like Oklahoma and Texas passing laws that say you can only teach patriotic history. It's not racism. That's trauma. They're so overwhelmed by what they did to become who they are, they can't even teach it anymore. As a nation, we don't know how to talk about our history because we're in shock and denial over what we're standing on. This is why we refer to what Columbus did as discovery instead of what we actually did, which was ethnic cleansing and genocide. We don't know how to deal with that. And so when, when you deal with people who are traumatized, most traumatized people have what are called triggers. A trigger is something that takes you out of reality and back into the chaos of the moment of when the traumatic event occurred. A sight, a sound, a smell, something takes you out of reality and back into the chaos of the moment of when the trauma occurred. So if we understand the dominant culture of white America as a group of traumatized people, it's easy to see white America's triggers. So seven years of a black president is a trigger. If President Obama is not 
president for the past seven years, there is no way Donald Trump rises to the prominence he's in right now. This doesn't happen. Any sort of national dialogue on gun control is a trigger. It takes our nation out of reality. We cannot have a conversation on gun control without screaming at each other. I identify ISIS as a trigger. Why is ISIS a trigger? Well, they're a group of religious zealots ethnically cleansing a land to set up their own pseudo-religious empire. I mean, that's our history. That's what we've done. White America doesn't know what to do with that. And so whenever ISIS attacks or bombs somewhere, it, it freaks us out. This is why when Paris got bombed, we somehow made it all about us. We don't know what to do. That reflection is way too familiar. So because white America is traumatized, because white America has worked so hard over the past 500 years to carefully construct this myth of freedom, liberty, justice, and equality, I mean, if you read our Declaration of Independence, it begins with the words, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union. However, Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution just a few lines below it, the section of the Constitution that defines who we the people actually is, it defines who the Constitution was written for. It never mentions women. It specifically excludes natives, and it counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. Clearly, we the people means white landowning men. We don't know how to acknowledge that. We don't know how to acknowledge the fact that the purpose of the Constitution is to protect white landowning men. This is why people are shocked women earn 70 cents to the dollar. We shouldn't be shocked. The Constitution is working. We act shocked that our prisons are filled with people of color. We shouldn't be shocked. The Constitution is working. People are outraged that in 2010, the Supreme Court sided with Citizens United and declared that corporations now have the same rights to, to free speech as individuals in regards to politics. We act shocked, but the Supreme Court is doing what it was designed to do. It's protecting the interests of white landowning men. Now, some people say, well, didn't we correct that? Well, about 100 years later, I think it was 1868, we passed the 14th Amendment. This was the amendment meant to address Article I, Section 2. It extended the right of citizenship to all people born on this continent under the jurisdiction of the government. However, this amendment did not give women the right to vote. Women didn't get that right until 1920 with women's suffrage. This amendment did not make citizens of natives, and even after citizens did become, when natives did become citizens in 1924, many of our tribes still didn't receive the right to vote until 1948. So even this amendment that was meant to correct Article 1, Section 2, it didn't go the full way, and it still left disenfranchised and marginalized these huge sections of our population. And people forget it was in 1973, the very same amendment. The 14th Amendment was one of the amendments used in Roe versus Wade, which now concluded unborn babies aren't human, and therefore they can be aborted. What this demonstrates is at the heart of our Constitution, there's not a value for life. There's this assumption, this practice of dehumanization, and the value is actually for exploitation and profit. 
this, this makes our Constitution an incredibly dangerous and even racist document that assumes the white landowning male has the authority to determine who is and who is not human. But we don't know how to talk about that. We don't know how to describe those things. We don't know how to talk about that our problem with race is not this president or that senator or that Supreme Court justice or that Congress. The problem with race we have in America is because of our foundations. And we don't know how to talk about that. And so this is one of the challenges because we, most people do not understand white America is another group of traumatized people. And so when you have a group of traumatized people who are in shock and denial, when you have a nation that believes in its own exceptionalism, the only thing it can do is, is celebrate. It, it can't turn back and mourn and say we shouldn't have done that. So while I love the idea of having an Indigenous Peoples Day, I'm afraid that by reappropriating Columbus Day as Indigenous Peoples Day, what it's going to do is it's going to give white America another tool to distract them from what their history actually is. So I actually advocate that we need to keep Columbus Day, not celebrate it, but keep it as a day of mourning. Keep it as a reminder in front of us. I mean, after World War II, Germany taught the Holocaust. Why? So they would never do it again. They had to learn from their mistakes. They had to hold it in front of themselves so they would never do it again. We need to hold Columbus Day in front of ourselves to teach our people what they did, what this nation was actually built on, so that we will never do it again. And so, but that, that's the harder argument to make. It's easier for our, our, our nation just to say, well, we're going to celebrate these people now. And I completely agree. Let's celebrate the indigenous peoples of this land. But let's not do it at the expense of remembering what our country was actually founded on and teaching that and doing whatever we can to prevent ourselves from doing that again. Yeah, I think teaching it in the correct way is super important, obviously. And I love the way that you put that. Um, and keeping Columbus Day and just as a way of mourning and remembrance. And so how is the church impacted by living on lands that have been ethnically cleansed for their benefit? Well, again, the church is actually, the church wrote the doctrine of discovery. This is what came out of the church. And so we are just as complicit in this as the nation is. And I actually teach in churches on this, on this history all the time. And one of the ways, one of the roots of the doctrine of discovery in the church actually goes all the way back to the third century. So the early church, the first through third century church, when you join the church and you join the church through your discipleship, through your confession, through your community, through your repentance, when you join the church, you knew that you stood in opposition to the empire you knew that there was a good chance you'd be persecuted, maybe even killed, because of your membership in the church, because of your faith. Now, in the, in the third century, um, Constantine became emperor of Rome. And while he was emperor, he became a Christian. And he decided to Christianize Rome, to create a Christian empire. Now, Jesus never came for the purpose of creating a Christian empire. That was never his goal. He said, my kingdom is not of this earth, it's somewhere else. Paul was not about just reestablishing the Jewish empire. 
He was about bringing the gospel to the Gentiles and to the entire world. So the idea of a Christian empire is not found in the New Testament scriptures, but Constantine creates it. Now, once he creates it, there's a dilemma. Because an empire is built on both protection and expansion, while the church is built on suffering, persecution, and emptying yourself, two completely polar opposite goals. And so the empire expands and protects itself through war. So in the 4th century, we have this Christian empire doing what empires are supposed to do, which is it's fighting, it's fighting wars. Well, a plain text reading of the New Testament doesn't allow that for a Christian entity. And so we need someone like um, Augustine to come in and do some theological gymnastics and create a just war theory to justify why this Christian entity is out acting like the world, doing what the world does. So over the centuries, it's this just war theory that slowly morphs into the Crusades, which are all about expanding the empire and protecting Jerusalem. And then it's in the 1300s we see in the writings of the papal bulls, there's a new category that's defined for people, and it's this category of infidels. It's originally used to refer to the Moors or to the Muslims. And what creating this category of infidels does is it actually further distorts this idea that a Christian empire can be at war. But now instead of going to war even based on a just war theory, now you can go to war based on theological grounds. You're fighting the other because it's dehumanized the infidel. It's created this subcategory of other. And so now you can go to war based on your theology. So it's in the 1400s. Now that we've defined this category of other, that allows Pope Gregory to write the words invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever. Now we can be explicit about what we're going to do to the other. So the doctrine of discovery is the fruit of the church that has been embedded with the empire since Constantine. And so... So the, the church has one of the original, you know, some people will say the original sin of the church or of the nation is our racism. No, racism is the fruit of the church's sin. The fruit of the church's sin is thinking that we live in a Christian empire. It's thinking that somehow we can be in bed with the empire and that's okay. And so for the church to confront this sin, we have to actually separate ourselves from the empire. We have to become the bride of Christ again. We have to become an independent, separate entity from the empire. I mean, how many pastors do we know have not, been a, a, not had the courage to speak the truth around politics, not because they don't feel a certain way or believe a certain thing, but because they're concerned for their 501c3 status, which does not allow them to take a side on political elections. I mean, the 501c3 status and the way that it, it, it mutes our Christian churches is one way the empire um, controls or, or tries to tries to control what the church can and cannot say. And so, so I, I I challenge churches all the time that yes, we have to confront the sin of racism, but the, the racism is not the root sin. The, the the sin we need to confront, we need to begin repenting of, is this belief that we somehow live in a Christian nation. This notion that the United States of America ever was, is currently now, or ever is going to be Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. That, that doesn't exist in Scripture. We need to be the bride of Christ again. We need to be the separate entity 
that is able to speak prophetically to and challenge and even stand in opposition to the empire when the empire makes choices that are counter to what, what we believe. Wow, that's, that's a lot of information, and it was also impactful. Um, do you have any suggestions on how others could get involved or get more information on you in general? Yeah, so one of the things that I'm calling the church into is I believe the church needs to go into what I am calling a season of lament. I'm writing a book right now on the doctrine of discovery. Um, the working title we have is Truth Be Told. My co-author is Sinshan Ra, um, who's written several other incredible books. One of them is The Next Evangelicalism, and one he just published a few, about a year ago, is called A Prophetic Lament. And in his book on lament, he describes one of the characteristics of lament is like being at a funeral dirge. So there's an empty body, there's a dead body in the casket. It's not coming back to life. All you can do is weep over it. All you can do is mourn. That is what we need to do with our sin of being in bed with the empire and the fruit of racism. There are literally 500, if not 1,600 years of dead bodies in caskets. We're not going to fix that. We're not going to change that. We can make better choices moving forward, but we have to lament the past, and we need to, we need to do that. And so I'm actually working right now. I'm traveling all over the country, speaking in churches, speaking at Christian universities, speaking at Christian conferences, and I'm calling the church into a season of lament. I use the word season of lament instead of a service of lament or a period of lament or a day of lament because we tend to, even when we do lament in the Christian church, which is not very often, we we limit it to a very small period of time because it makes us very uncomfortable. And I like the word season of lament because who changes the seasons? Well, it's God. When you look at at the practice of lament in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, when people lament, when God's people lament, he meets them there. The problem with the American church, and one of our challenges is we don't stay in lament long enough for God to show up. And so there's this whole side of God, this whole character of God that we almost never interact with because we don't stay in our lament long enough to actually meet God there. And so I'm, I'm working with others to call the church into a season of lament where we can recognize our complicity. We wrote the Doctrine of Discovery. We've been invested in it for 500 years. And we need to lament that, allow God to meet us there and show us how we need to move forward and what we need to do to address this. One of the biggest challenges with lament and one of the the huge um, issues with the church is as American Christians, we've been taught to read the scriptures completely backwards. So we read the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, and we put ourselves in the place of Old Testament Israel. As a nation, we, we have this bias that tells us that we are God's chosen people as Americans, and this is our promised land. That goes back to the image of a city on a hill from John Winthrop, and that goes back to so much of what we even understand as our manifest destiny as a nation, this this notion that we were somehow chosen, selected by God to be this blessed entity, to be a city on a hill, a light to the world, and that we have promised land. Now, the challenge with that is if you're really going to lament, 
you're really going to cry out to God and weep over your past, you have to have some hope, some light at the end of the tunnel. Now, if I were to just call the church into a season of lament, we would look for some kind of hope. Now, most churches, without even thinking about it, would probably turn to the book of Second Chronicles and the passage that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, confess their sins, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. We forget that that is God reiterating his land covenant with the nation of Israel at the second dedication of the temple. As a nation, we don't have a land covenant with the God of Abraham. As a nation, we are not God's chosen people, and even as Christians, we don't have promised land. It doesn't exist for us. And so we can't cling to this promise that God's going to heal our land. I tell people all the time, the United States of America is not rich and powerful because of God's blessing. We're rich and powerful because we're systemically racist and inherently unjust. Now, if your son or daughter stole a bike, and they came to you and repented of their sin and confessed their sin and turned from their ways and said, Mom, Dad, I stole this bike. What parent allows them to keep it? That's, that's no one. No good parent is going to do that. I tell people confessing the sins of our nation is not going to be safe. Our hope as a nation doesn't come from a land covenant with the God of Abraham. Our hope as a nation comes from the character of God. The fact that God describes himself as good doesn't mean he's not just, but he's also good. So the hope of America comes from the fact that God was actually willing to negotiate with Abraham over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. The hope of America comes from the fact that God, of his own desire, said to Jonah, I want to have mercy on Nineveh, go and prophesy to them. The hope of America does not come from a covenant with God. We don't have one. It comes from the character of God. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When he's describing the kids, they've come into Narnia, it's always winter, never Christmas, never spring. They've lost their brother to the white witch. They've met the beavers. They're walking through the forest, and they're hearing about this character, Aslan, as they're sitting at the beaver's house. And they start asking questions about Aslan, who is he? And Mrs. Beaver says, um, well, finally, Susan says, well, excuse me, is Aslan a man? And Mrs. Beaver tells him, no, honey, he's not a man, he's a lion. Susan says, well, I'm going to be very nervous about meeting a lion. Well, you should be. If anyone can stand before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. And then they ask, well, is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's a lion. He's not safe. But he's good. He's good. That's the hope of the American church, confessing our sin, acknowledging our complicity in the doctrine of discovery. That's not going to be safe. But our hope is not found in that. Our hope is found in the belief that God is good. Our hope is found in this understanding that God is not going to check your passport at the judgment. As Americans, we are not justified by our citizenship in a supposedly Christian empire. We are justified by one thing and one thing alone, and that's the blood of Christ. And that is what should give us the courage as a church to acknowledge our history, to acknowledge our complicity, and to allow God to do what it is he wants to do.
without trying to dictate or manipulate or change the situation. And that is only going to come, I, I'm convinced, is if the, if the church goes through a season of lament, a lament of understanding the depth of our brokenness, our incredible need for God, and remind ourselves of the hope that we have in the blood of Christ. Thank you so much, Mark, for uh, speaking with me today. I have a lot to think about, and I know all of our uh, listeners will have a lot to think about as well. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It was it was a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, your your listeners can find my writings, and I, I actually am very active on social media. My website is wirelesshogan.com. That's W-I-R-E-L-E-S-S-H-O-G-A-N.com. And uh, my username on all social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, is all Wireless Hogan. And so you can also find me just by Googling my name, Mark Charles, and uh, you'll find the, the articles I've written and the work that I've been doing with many other tremendous partners around the country. Um, so thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. It is certainly challenging to realize the benefit most of us receive from this land claimed and taken so long ago. Mark Charles challenges us not only to view history from the Native perspective, but to realize that we, individuals and as a nation, bear the pain of trauma because we are the inheritors of the spoils of oppressors. How does that feel to you? In the Old Testament Bible story about Moses, the great Jewish prophet, he is called up onto the mountaintop. And on this mountaintop, he meets God face to face, is how we say it. God gives Moses the commands that humanity needs in order to live peacefully, not taking endless revenge and keeping our priorities straight. There are ten commandments, and you may know them. They form two parts. The first reminds us to keep our focus on God by loving and honoring God, most of all, with our words and with our lives. The other half are a series of specifics designed to teach people how to live together. One of those goes like this. Do not desire your neighbor's house. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. I think desire is a mild form of the Hebrew word used. 
Did those colonists in early America desire or covet the land? And what kind of superiority assumed it was theirs for the taking? More so, how has the arrogance and passion for land that has been passed on to us affected the way we think? Certainly, our, quote, history, as Mark points out, tells us we claimed land. His stark language makes it much more clear. How will we tell the next generation our history? And what can we do now to change our ways and ask forgiveness for our national ancestors? This week's challenge will take some more clicks and reading and a lot of thinking, but I promise I won't stop at the thinking. Will you? Here's how to connect. Wirelesshogan.com is Mark's website. That's wirelesshogan.com. And it's full of places to start and discover. A place you can probably go right now is his Twitter feed, at Wireless Hogan. That'll take you there, and you'll see how connected the present news are to historical news. Then make a plan, a new story, a way to tell history. Tell a friend first, work it out, and along the way, express how you feel that we inherited the benefit of those who desired their neighbor's land. Then tweet at Dunker Punk's pod or include us in your tweets to Mark, and let's keep challenging each other to greater faithfulness. Then listen for part two of Emmy's exploration of Joel West Williams after we let this one simmer in us a while. Until then, a few words from a Navajo blessing. With beauty, may you walk. With beauty before you, may you walk. With beauty behind you, may you walk. With beauty above you, may you walk. With beauty below you, may you walk. With beauty all around you, may you walk, Dunker Punks. The Dunker Punk Podcast is created by a team of young adults who live across the country and take turns creating audio that speaks to the Jesus way of healing and reconciliation. Jacob Krauss created our theme song and edited this week. I produced the show with Suzanne Lay. Tell us how the show speaks to you by leaving a comment on iTunes and spread the word by telling a friend. We're Dunker Punk's Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat. Staying connected is an important way to healing and reconciliation. Thanks for listening this week. We'll return in two with another show from Elizabeth Ullery Swenson on continuing the conversation about new and creative ways to do and be church.